Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. This is a presentation by Mark Drapeau. He is Director of Innovative Social Engagement at Microsoft. Prior to that, he was Associate Research Fellow at National Defense University. He is also a contributing writer at Mashable.com, and he was kind enough to come in and address my social media masterclass uh, taught January 2010 in Washington, D.C. By the way, if you're interested in attending a future social media masterclass or any of the social media boot camps that I teach, you can get the schedule at ericschwartzman.com. Uh, here is the presentation by Mark Drapeau, and I hope you enjoy it. So I was uh, just telling Eric, I spent three years at a place called National Defense University, which is part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, and I was studying emerging technologies and how they affect national security community and the government a little bit more generally. And towards the end of that, I got really interested in Web 2.0 and Enterprise 2.0 and all this kind of stuff that's out there, how mobile is changing this and so on and so forth. And so, you know, if you, if you Google my name, you can find all kinds of things I've written and whatever. Um, and so I got more, much more broadly interested than just the military in this. And long story short, I ended up joining Microsoft's U.S. Public Sector Division as something that, that I call Director of Innovative Social Engagement. And we're still trying to figure out exactly what that is, but a lot of it has to do with um, you know, creating proactive online and real-life content that engages communities, uh, which is something I think Microsoft needs to work on a bit, particularly engaging government audiences, state, local, federal, um, political-type audiences, you know, especially with an election year right now. Um, and education, healthcare, to a lesser degree, at least for me. Um, and you know, I'm trying to work at the intersection of uh, where technology comes together with social uh, to create interesting experiences that are truly engaging and memorable. And some of that's online, um, and some of that will be in real life. And TBD to see if uh, I'll be successful at this. But Microsoft is a whole team of people that are interested in. Um, innovation and citizenship and a bunch of things and we're all being like repurposed into this new unit that's going to do essentially a nationwide campaign about all this stuff and I'm sort of the point social guy. So I'm very interested in what I call proactive social content or um, you know engaging and influencing communities and you know, I, I used to I, I used a lot of military metaphors because what I was doing, and so you know things like preparing the battlefield and information warfare. But honestly, like I don't know what all of you do uh, exactly, but there's an information war out there. And my background is actually as a biologist, and there's a great bi biology quote, which is "Nature abhors a vacuum." I don't know if any of you have heard that before, but you know, empty spaces will be filled by something, and so. If you work in fashion or you work in IT, whatever you do, um, if, if there's a, a, a niche, it will be filled by someone's content, right? And you were just talking about search engines and things like that. When you search for a topic, fashion, 
shoes, computers, is someone finding your stuff? And that's sort of the premise I start with. And there's an information war to be found, right? So I, I, you know, I'm not a big like SEO guy. I don't really, honestly, I don't follow like who clicks through on my link shorteners. I don't, I don't pay attention to any of that kind of stuff, to be honest. All I do is think about who is my audience, what stage am I performing on, and what kind of content am I giving that audience, and how do we engage? So it's not to say that other stuff is like wrong or anything, but this is the way I've always approached it as sort of a, you know, an unconventional person. And I think all about, you know, if someone is searching for government 2.0, are they finding my stuff? And so on. And the way I think about my new job and the way I sort of think about the use of new media and social media in government for schools, universities, for big corporations, for small corporations, is as public <coughs> diplomacy and actively shaping the communications environment in which other people are uh, acting. So I think of it as pre-marketing and pre-sales and pre-legal troubles. Okay, so when people go and Microsoft puts a full page ad in the Atlantic Monthly, or they put a poster on the Metro for Windows 7, or a TV commercial, Windows 7 was my idea. I see my job as, before anyone sees that, shaping the communications environment so that people are more receptive to those messages. Because I'm sure you're somewhat aware, if you're in a class like this, that people are less and less receptive to marketing messages that are sort of static and unengaging and traditional. People have a lot of information coming at them, they have less time to view it, and so on. And so if, if we can create experiences that come before the marketing comes, or before the salesperson shows up at the government office and says, here's our enterprise agreement for 2011 to 2014, and it's got all this stuff, and it's this many million dollars. I want them, when they see that salesperson, saying, yeah, you know, like, I was at that Microsoft social event, like, last year, and, like, man, they really have some cool technology. I'm going to double down my bet on Microsoft, or any company. You know, this applies to anything. So, you know, public diplomacy, when people think of diplomacy, they usually think of a big conference table and a bunch of old dudes, like, sitting across from each other, and they're talking to their counterparts, right, and they're negotiating an agreement. you got to do that, right? That's sort of like sales, if you will, right? Public diplomacy is something like Radio Free Europe, okay? It's something like the U.S. State Department wants to talk to people in another country, to influence them, to engage them, to maybe even activate them in some ways. And we do that in a lot of different ways. I think that companies and nonprofits and stuff can do that too, to a large extent, to sort of soften the battlefield. And, you know, one thing I thought about a lot and wrote about a lot when I was in the government, and I think this is true, too, now being in a big corporation, <laughs> I'm starting to learn the hard way all over again, is that, you know, all of you are A, right? And E is your audience. That's a citizen, that's a customer, whatever. And a lot of times the way things work is you have to give something to B, that's your boss, and C, that's someone in corporate, or public affairs, or legal, and then they have to bounce it to someone else, or they bounce it back, and then somehow it gets to a customer or a citizen, you know? And I think this is how a lot of marketing works. This is how a lot of press releases work. Um, and the reality is that while there are reasons for that, and sometimes that's good and fine and everything, what's happening is a lot of people are skipping from A to E, whether they even know it or not. 
because even if it's unofficial and you're just on your iPhone and you're tweeting or you're, you have a personal blog about your flower garden, I don't care. You are one way or another reaching people through that social engagement. And this is particularly troublesome for giant corporations that try to control everything, for government agencies that really try to control everything. And the reality is that all their people are out there blogging and tweeting and going to events and interacting. They're on Facebook and MySpace and LinkedIn and everything. And stuff is reaching. So I, you know, I think of that as sort of social engagement. I think of the normal way of doing things as inherently antisocial. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of um, government agencies say, you know, we need to be more social. We need to get on social media. We need to hire a director of social media, right? So there's all these people now that are directors of social media, and there's people that do social marketing. And, you know, there's a point person at marketing for social technology or digital technology. But inherently, it's about being social, and everyone gets bogged down in the media part of it. You know, who knows about, like, TweetDeck, you know? It's not about TweetDeck. It's about interacting with other people. What's amazing to me is that if you go into the marketing department or the PR group at a government agency, and you ask them, like, can you name five customers? Or can you name, like, five fans of Microsoft or any other company? If you go to the EPA, Public Affairs, can you name five people that love the EPA? They will have a hard time. Because at the end of the day, they're not being social with the kind of people that actually care about the organization. And so I think of a lot of this as, you know, being social and really caring about a community of people that care about you. People are not necessarily like a fan of your specific business. I get these Facebook fan requests, please be a fan of Eric Schwartzman Consulting Group, or please be a fan of, you know, local flower shop, mom and pop, or... Please be a fan of the USDA. No one is a fan of the USDA. But people are very passionate about some topics like, you know, uh, local farms, clean water, you know, sustainable environment. People are fans of that kind of stuff. That's what communities care about. And I think a lot of that is lost in the shuffle. And that's why I'm very much a fan of sharing lots and lots of information proactively and being a resource for that community. Even if it's not exactly clear what the requirement is for you to be writing the blog post. Um, I think if you write compelling content and share it with the community that you're actively involved in, people will find it, they will read it, they will comment on it, they will share it, they will spread it. And that's frankly why I'm here today, because I've done that a lot, and a lot of people have shared my stuff with a lot of people, and so people hear about me. Um, but it's not because I'm tracking keywords and I'm obsessed with metrics, it's just I just pump content out there. That's a lot of work in a different way. But inherently, I think that sharing is caring. And I think that the best offense is a good offense. You know, I, I, I also see a lot of stuff where people say, you know, oh my God, there's a PR problem. Let's write a blog post about it. Let's react to it. The TSA has a great blog. You know, they're a very well-loved organization. They wanted to get in touch with their community. And so they have this terrific blog. But a lot of the blog is very reactive. It's sort of like someone wrote a comment on the blog about how their grandmother was frisked at the, you know, LAX or something. And then they write a blog post about it. That, that's kind of good. You know, okay, well, these are our rules, and we have random checks, and sorry it was your grandmother, but that's just the way it is. Yeah, okay. But a lot of organizations don't put out like proactive content. I would love to see on the TSA blog more information about the future of the airline industry 
or you know, like security in general, security around the world. What is Israel up to? What the hell is Nigeria doing? What is France doing? I think a lot of people were just scared to kind of put themselves out there. Um, so a lot of blog posting by big organizations uh, is is very defensive, unless it's about you know this is our new product, you know, buy it right. Then it's like out in your face, and no one wants that either. Um, so I think the best offense is a good offense. Be out there in front. And an, another word I'm learning a lot about now is risk. Everyone's scared. You know, Mark, like having you out there tweeting about Google is risky. Um, yeah, maybe it is, you know. And you can find all sorts of case studies where there was someone like me at an organization or a PR firm did something for a big client, and they did something, and it was risky. And sometimes these things fail or flop, right? There's no question that it's risky. But the flip side of risk is reward. And so if you're never taking any of these risks, if you never put yourself out there, if you never experiment, um, you will never get any rewards and you're very stagnant, if not declining. Uh, your brand value declines. So there's a great book by, by my buddy Peter Shankman. It's called Can We Do That? Um, it's a few years old, but I read it recently and because uh, I had to stop lying to him about whether or not he read his book. So I said, oh, okay, I'll read the book. Um, but it's great. There's a lot of good examples about clients that he had where he did something that was really risky. And one thing he says in the book, I forget how he phrases it, but it's something like, like, careful about the crazy ideas you come up with. You might just have to do one of them. Yeah. So the flip side of that is that, you know, some of you might work for businesses or have clients or whatever that do want to take risks. And there's, a, there's potentially a very big payoff there. So I'm very, you know, we'll get into some more specifics maybe. You know, I think there are specific messages you want to put out there, specific communities you want to engage, specific topics you want to talk about for specific reasons. But I think to some extent, like, you can take a step back. And this is sort of, I think it was New York Magazine or Vanity Fair or something, wrote a big article about Obama um, maybe six months ago called The Message is the Message. And they were commenting on the fact that he was everywhere all the time on all different media talking about ten different topics, and the Republicans couldn't keep up with him. Now, you, you can agree or disagree about whether or not that was a good thing for him to be doing, but to some degree, if you are filling those vacuums and you are dominating your community's information spectrum, everywhere someone is looking for stuff, there's often something by you. You're guest posting, you have an article in the magazine, you have some video content, whatever it is. If you can dominate that information spectrum, sometimes it doesn't even matter to some degree what you actually say, because people will recognize you as a thought leader if you just have a presence and it's decent and people aren't hating on you, of course. It's got to be decent. But it doesn't necessarily have to be outstanding if you're a consistent contributor all the time. And so people perceived President Obama, say, six months ago, as completely dominating all the topics, leading all the news stories. Because he was just everywhere. He, he'd talk about energy. There'd be a blog post on the website about education. He'd be somewhere else at night talking about national security. It was like, holy crap, we can't stay on top of the news cycle. Uh, and this is a Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk is a wine and marketing guru. And I'm sure he didn't invent this, but he says it a lot. So I stole it from him, I'll say. And that content is king, but marketing is the queen. And she rules the castle. And so I think it's great to have lots and lots of content. It's got to be pretty decent. I think that it's really good to have some really great content, of course, but then you also have to get it out there, right? So you have to know where is your community and then how do you sort of market that? How do you make that information flow to your community? And so I'm not, you know, I'm not a tools guy. Like, 
I don't get excited about Twitter and Foursquare and Facebook fan pages. It's all crap because you you need to know where your people are at the end of the day. And if your if your people are not on Twitter and they're not using Foursquare, what are you doing there? So it's good to experiment a little bit, but don't get too carried away with the, the latest tool that you read about on National or TechCrunch. Know where your people are. If they use email a lot, um, you know maybe maybe you know for some reason they all subscribe to BizNow or they subscribe to Smart Brief on entrepreneurship. I don't know. Maybe it should be a goal to get your stuff in there and not so much have a great Twitter account or get people to check into your business on Foursquare, right? So you have to kind of know where people are. Um, you know, and I'm a big fan of MySpace, even though I don't use it a lot, because, you know, research shows that people on MySpace compared to Facebook tend to be in red states. They tend to be um, less likely to be college educated. They tend to make less money. There's a whole niche of people that still use MySpace very actively, for example. And I think a lot of people have gotten carried away to some degree with Facebook, and they're leaving a lot of people behind. Because people generally only use one social network, like, a lot. And same with LinkedIn. There are a tremendous number of, uh, you know, LinkedIn discussion groups and other similar features where you can interact with people. On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, Social Media Editor of the New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyang, Analyst and Partner at the Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit ontherecordpodcast.com for the promo code before you register. So I really think, you know, no matter what, you have to choose the right tools for the job and not get carried away of being on Dig and Reddit and all these other things and having a Huffington Post blog and a Twitter account and, you know, figure out, you know, what works for whatever your mission is. I think of everything as having a big goal. What is your big goal? Your big goal is to sell more widgets? Is it to get someone to, you know, to earn media about a client or about your business? Um, what What is, you know, is it to get into a new market where you're not? Is it to expand your influence? So what is that mission? And then what tactics can you deploy to help you meet that mission? So ignore the hype, do some small experiments, and fail small and safely. Meaning, you know, you're going to make some educated guesses about what tactics you deploy to meet your mission uh, by following some strategy, but they're not all going to work. You, you might think, yeah, boy, you know, I think we're going to start a new Twitter account that's going to be dedicated to, you know, whatever, um, blue widgets, right? And then maybe it just doesn't catch on. Maybe you work hard at it for three months and no one is following that. There's no engagement. Let it go away because that's not such a big catastrophic failure that's going to bring you down. Right? So try to do little experiments that uh, enable you to, if you fail, fail very small and very safely. So, good thing Eric left the room. Um, so, <laughs> so, I'm not a big metrics guy. You know, I've been to some of these government meetings, right? Like these, you know, internal workshops. And it's, it's like, okay, we're going to talk about our efforts on the peanut product recall. 
here's a chart showing how many people follow their Twitter account. Here's how many Facebook fans we have about the peanut product recall. Here's like the number of click-throughs we get per per link per. And the whole thing is about metrics. And I'm like, have you forgotten entirely what you're actually trying to do? Because it seems like people get so obsessed with metrics that they forget about the community they're actually trying to engage. There's never any people's names in metrics, right? So I always ask, you know, is what I'm doing adding value to the community? So I look at very, very basic metrics, like um, are my Twitter numbers going up? Are people at least, say, 100 people clicking on every link I put out there? And if it's 200, that's great. You know, If it's 1,000, that would be highly unusual. So you just sort of know where your sweet spots are. Um, are people retweeting it you know, fairly often? That's pretty good. If people are retweeting your stuff, that's, that's fairly good. So I always ask, you know, are people adding value? And one of my sayings is that I count thank yous, not click-throughs. And I do know that I did a good job last year doing social media, not because I have a bunch of bit.ly metrics, but because I have more Christmas cards from people I originally met online than I did last year. Yeah. Okay, so maybe it's just me, but I have a boss who does not understand the value of social media, will not look at any of our social media that we offer. For him, the only thing that speaks to him is metrics. That's the only thing. And so I can say I'm adding value and establishing relationships and getting Christmas cards, but at the end of the day, he signs my budget. So, and he signs my headcount. Yeah, so, so I understand that. I think the important thing is to never let this get out of your, out of your mind. I think, you know, to some degree, you do need some metrics. You need to prove some value of what you're doing. There's no doubt about it. But I think it can be taken way overboard. That's all. I think find some very basic, straightforward metrics that don't take a lot of time to analyze that are clearly associated with the strategy for meeting that big goal. And then just let all the rest go. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You do need some metrics. Um, but I think this is what... The, the other thing is, here's the other way to look at it, too. If your stuff is getting out there so much and you are just invading that information spectrum, if you are dominating, here's what happens. Is that someone important ends up reading it because you know their assistant reads your blog all the time. They give it to their boss. Their boss knows your boss's boss. And then wants to know who the awesome person is in that organization putting out all this blog content. And then your boss's boss tells your boss, and your boss is like, oh, I guess you are doing something good. And I saw that in the government, where very important people would talk to people way above me. And our director didn't understand anything about this stuff, generally. Um, and people above him or his peers would know about what I was doing. So that ended up giving me a lot of clearance to have more freedom to collect less metrics and just, you know, continue to dominate. But common question. So, you know, when I think about sort of influencing communities, I think of this equation. Uh, brand times experience times trust. So, I think it's, you know, what is your brand? I think that's something that's more... I think I made this slide for a government audience. I think companies... You do know what your brand is. I think a lot of government agencies um, and maybe like a lot of nonprofits to some degree forget that they really have brands. The military has brands. The agencies really do have a brand that can be marketed. I think a lot of nonprofits and government they kind of shy away from the idea that they're marketing uh, their brands, but it's true. Um, who are the experts that are out there representing your brand in these spaces? 
and how do you how do you find those people internally, or how do you bring new people in? And does anyone trust you? So does anyone trust these experts that you found? And again, I think that goes back to community. So you know, this idea of measuring metrics and stuff. Yes, you can show that you're getting more clicks, or your Twitter account has more followers this month than last month. Um, you know, but does anyone trust you? Does anyone know you? I think that's really the most important question. And I go back to what I said about the marketing department not knowing any customers. There's a big disconnect. And so I think the real strength is to represent a brand well, to be some kind of subject matter expert that puts out all this proactive content and have people trust you. And so um, there's a t-shirt company called Threadless, and I forget the guy's name, the founder of Threadless, said, you know, don't just feel the pulse, be the pulse. And what I found is, um, you know, if you, if you Google lethally generous, you'll find a great blog article by named Michelle Israel. And he wrote this article about a certain kind of person that's what he calls lethally generous. And so someone who's lethally generous just gives and gives and gives of themselves to the community, puts out lots of content, goes to lots of events, gives talks like this for free, and you know, just interacts with the community, jets up to Manhattan to go just to go to a cocktail party. Um, and you know, puts up job ads on their on their website just to help people who might be looking for a job. And what happens is when you do this, at first it's just like, holy crap, what am I doing? I'm doing all this work and like I'm not getting anything out of this. What happens is, after some period of time, people come to trust you as a member of the community. In fact, they trust you in, in accordance with how much you're giving to the rest of the people because people are out there passing your stuff around. They're thanking each other. They're, they know that you're part of the community. And so what happens is the whole thing turns on its head because then while you're still putting out lots and lots of content, everyone is now sending their content to you because they trust you the most. Can you review this new idea I have? Can I run something by you? Can I give you uh, my news before it's public? Do you want to come talk to this private group? And so everyone trusts you so much that you end up not just feeling the pulse because you're sort of out there and you sort of know what, what people are talking about on Twitter and in, in your niche, but you actually are, to a large degree, the pulse because you are not only putting out a good deal of the content in your community, you're also receiving a good deal of information about your community from everyone else who trusts you. And this is, if you can be the pulse of a community, even if it's a very small one, um, that is a very, very powerful position to be in. And it's also very hard to topple people from being the pulse of the community if you, you know, continue to put some kind of effort into it. And why the term lethal? Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask Shell. Um, <laughs> I think it's just a catchy term. You know, it's like you're, you're just generous to the point where you're killing yourself, maybe. I don't know. Just, just Google lethally generous. It's a very nice article. Um, about a guy, uh, uh, Jeremiah Oyang, who was like a Forrester research analyst, and now he's now he joined some other company. Um, but he he just you know at the end of the day he was just a sort of financial web 2.0 analyst for one of these big analytics firms. But he's literally the only guy I could possibly name that's like an analyst in, into the computer world because he just wrote such good blog posts and he spoke pervasively at events and he was always in photos with other people at events and I was like, ah, here I am again, right? So I copied what Jeremiah was doing to a large degree inside the government, you know? This isn't original, but um, yeah, anyway, good, good story there. 
So this is one of the other big comments I used to hear in the government a lot, um, and I think I'm going to get this in corporate America too. It's not in my job description. This stuff isn't in my job description. I'm just a blank, you know, or I don't have enough time, or I don't have the right tools, or I don't get what Twitter is, and I don't have time to learn. And I, I say, you know, saying that it's not in my job description is not in my job description, <laughs> right? Like, so I think people either kind of, you either want it or you don't. And so I think, no, you're not going to get everyone to participate. But I think, you know, how do you find the social media experts within a large organization especially? Um, you got to find the people that already have that passion and want to give and contribute more. And then figure out, okay, now what is that person good at? What is their expertise? What do they have time to do? Are they always mobile? Are they always at their desk? Are they, <coughs> pardon me, do they look good on camera? Are they great writers? Whatever. And then figure out, okay, how can they do a little something? How can they do a little something? And I'm going to try to be figuring that out in my new spot. You know, and I used to say, remember that citizens are your end user. You know, again, getting back to the idea that people in public affairs don't know any people that read their press releases. People in marketing don't know any customers. Um, you know, customers are your end user, uh, to use a geeky phrase. And I think that... You know, especially if you work for a giant government agency or a big company, people have very low expectations of you, quite frankly. It's very easy to, like, make people feel a little better about what the IRS is up to or what evil Microsoft is up to. It's not that hard to change people's expectations of you over, say, a 6- to 12-month period if you really get out there and people start to trust you. And trust me, I, I, you know, I used to go to, like, mashable happy hours and they would say, like, you know, Department of Defense on my, uh, you know, on my ID card, and I'd be carrying around, like, a Blackberry, and I'd have a tie on, and I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, <laughs> but people, you know, when they saw me at the third Mashable event, they were like, this guy's something. Like, I don't quite know what he's up to, but he's trying to be a member of our community. And I read that blog post he wrote, that was, that was pretty interesting. I think maybe I will follow him on Twitter. And this stuff kind of builds on top of itself. So, you know, to a large degree, if you go out and ask, like, startup companies and geeks, especially in New York and Boston and Los Angeles and San Fran and Chicago, do you know anyone that the Department of Defense or do you know anyone that works in the federal government? There's a good proportion that will say me. Um, just because I'm the guy they happened to meet at some party like a year ago. So I think that's possible for anyone if you just make that effort to be out there, try to stay in touch with people, write to them if they give you a business card and so forth and change people's expectations and now I'm going to try to do this with Microsoft that who a lot of people have you know somewhat negative connotation of for a lot of reasons at the same time they do 9 billion in research a year they have all kinds of innovative products frankly they power the entire government with all their software so there's a lot of good stuff there too so how can I change people's expectations I think it actually won't be very hard and I love this quote by Craig Newark, the founder of Craigslist, customer service is public service. This guy, Craig, is the hardest working, like, you know, billionaire out there. I don't know how much money he has. But, you know, Craigslist is wildly successful. And this guy, like, you know, six hours a day, eight hours a day, I don't know what he does. But he is answering people's emails. Like, he knows individual customers and has their emails and answers their questions about Craigslist. He is the lead customer service representative. That's his like title at the company he founded. He doesn't even run his own company because this is what he cares about. Can anyone name me the CEO of Craigslist? Yeah, exactly, right? 
because he's not into like spread, he's not into spreadsheets, right? He's into helping his community, and that's why people love Craigslist to a large degree. Besides the fact that it's useful, because they get good customer service and they know this guy cares, and he's out there at events, and now he's trying to help the government. He's trying to help the State Department and Veterans Affairs do better customer service in their own way. And I think this might be the second to last slide or last slide. You know, another thing I saw a lot in, in the government and I and probably in Microsoft too, indecision. Indecision is not a decision. And there's a lot of like, we're very excited about social media. This is where we need to be. Let's set up an interagency working group and discuss this and come out with an interim report five months from now as we work towards a final policy decision about guidelines for using social media within the federal government and coordinated with the Cybersecurity Council. It's like, okay, you know, you don't get it. You just don't get it because you're so you're gonna be so far behind by the time you come out with your guidelines. And meanwhile, everyone is still going around your back, tweeting and Facebooking and LinkedIn and going to events and learning more stuff. And now, like half the CIA is on Foursquare, right? And it's like you're screwed. <laughs> so, you know, plans are nothing without action. You do need guidelines. You should think through your goals and your strategy and stuff. But you can't get caught up in this cycle of indecision because you're falling behind your competition and or you're not serving your customers well or your community well or citizens very well. For an inside perspective on exactly what it takes to handle communications at the White House, the U.S. Department of Defense, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Department of State, search keyword GOV20 on our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, who are the government elites and who are the, you know, the, the important decision makers. These are these euphemisms we use, right, um, for the people that buy our stuff. So, you know, you have these, like, very important decision makers that influence policy and things. You have people like um, an agency CIO or deputy CIO. They're the people that actually sit down with salespeople and negotiate these agreements. Um we already know all those people, right? So we, if we're having problems um, with them, it's not because we're not sitting down with them. Um, and they're so busy, they don't have time, frankly, to like go to social events and see rad Microsoft stuff. They're very busy people. I mean, I know some of these people. So, so, how, so how do you influence them, right? Um, well, the way I've been thinking about it is by going after, first of all, uh, get all their systems drunk, all the time, no, but throwing <laughs> throwing events and creating content that people find remarkable, such that people literally remark about it to these people's assistants, to people in the community surrounding them, so that their spouses hear about something, see the funny Microsoft video, and soften that battlefield, do pre-sales, pre-marketing so that they're more receptive. So I think you know these people do talk to people, they talk to their assistants, they talk to their peers, 
they talk to their spouses, they talk to their friends. And so I think to some degree, if you go after tastemakers, um, if you go after other influential people in society, um, to some degree geared towards a niche, so my niche will be sort of technology and innovation. Um, but if you go after those people, you know, I, I don't care who it is, you know, Vivek Kundra, the CIO of the country, he's on a train, he's reading Vanity Fair. I mean, that's, you know, people take breaks, they read Washington Life magazine, whatever. And if there's a story in there, or someone using Microsoft technology, or a new experiment on a Vanity Fair website using some kind of Microsoft stuff, that, I think, is what I'm trying to accomplish, to reach them indirectly. It's, it's what I call um, indirect in, intimate influence. So you indirectly try to reach people. Um, it's intimate because it's very personable. It's about getting into their community, um, and it's about influence. And apparently there's a new term for this that I just learned, gamma. If you're doing indirect in, intimate influence, which is very hard to say, um, you are a gamma marketer. So I don't know. I need to look this up actually myself. But someone told me this literally last night. So maybe it's something you want to read up on. Direct influences. Basically, well, indirect intimate influence is something I coined like a while back. It's hard to say. It never caught on. But I think that's what it is when it comes right down to it. When I'm describing. But I guess there's a term out there that describes very much the same thing called gamma or gamma marketing or being a gamma marketer or whatever. Does anyone have anything specific about their, their industry or business or niche or anything like that? Like, I love everything you're saying, but I'm different because I do something that doesn't seem to fit into this mold. I was kind of curious when you um, were saying earlier, you know, you're not so worried about the mechanisms and don't worry about Twitter and don't worry about this and I just pump stuff out there. But then later on, you're talking about obviously you have a lot of connections. Well, I just don't become obsessed with any given technology, right? Mm -hmm. So I use Twitter all the time. I have something like 14,000 followers almost. Um, I get a lot of retweets. I know people click through on the links I throw out there. Um, So, and I mean, some of my tweets have inspired other people to write blog posts, right? So I I use it, it's useful. Um, But, I'm not wedded to it. So you can also find articles by me where I think, you know, I've said things like Twitter's leadership is, you know, vague, (laughs) that I think the service is unreliable, that I'm not sure it'll be around in a year or it'll be really relevant in a year, that I think that they're vulnerable to competition from another company starting a more serious, more distributed, more reliable, more secure service that's geared towards business people or serious people. I think that the government could start something that looks like Twitter and say, this is for like emergency situations and government agencies and NGOs and contractors. Um, and then everyone would use that. Because when Haiti, you know, Haiti is, is going on and stuff, and Twitter was down for two hours on one of these days. And you might say, well, two hours, you know. But I think it's an example of how you cannot rely on it for emergencies. And that's what a lot of people say, you know, Twitter's very useful because Someone tweeted and they got out of jail. Well, yeah, you know, there might be a time when they tweet and it doesn't work. So, you know, I think all these things, you know, Foursquare is the latest rage in terms of, like, sort of social, mobile, geo stuff. 
Um, it may or may not take off. It has limitations. They have limited venture capital. They don't make any money, really. Right? These things can go away. I think that Posturus is a terrific blogging platform. You can blog through email or through text messages from your phone, especially. And it gets out there. If you attach something to an email, like a photo, it embeds it. If you link to a, you put a YouTube link in there, it embeds the video, and it just does it all for you. So I blog from my BlackBerry all the time. Um, but postures could be gone in a year, too. So I just don't get particularly excited about any of these new companies, because they're just inherently unreliable. Most of them go out of business, um, and even the ones that are popular get old sometimes, right? Um, the other thing is, you know, Again, like Facebook fan pages are one of these latest ranges. So Facebook, I think Facebook's pretty stable. I think it's pretty useful. There's a tremendous number of people on it. But within Facebook, I think a lot of people aren't thinking about what they're doing. So this idea that you have a Facebook fan page for the USDA or the EPA or something, no one is a fan of those things. What they should be doing, I think, is the Forest Service and the EPA and the USDA and the Park Service should get together and have something about a clean, green environment, right? You get a lot of fans to be a fan of that. So, you know, I just, I don't get, like, there's no, you know, people said, Mark, you should start a Facebook fan page for yourself. I'm like, why? You know, I don't get it. You know, just send, send me an email, tweet me, you know, follow my blog. But I, I don't, I don't get, jump on every bandwagon. If you have 14,000 followers or 14,000? I think I have 138 and growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you generally tweet about? Um, and what do you hope so, to achieve by this? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So I've been on it a long time. You know, I tell everyone, everyone starts at zero, right? First of all. So I've been on it for a year and nine months. And a year ago, 5,000 followers was like quite a lot. Things have changed a lot. Um, so the number isn't inherently important, I don't think. Um, I think the important thing is you have people in your community that follow you. Now, what do I tweet about? Um, I have, I, I try to be very personal and transparent. So I try to make it about, about me and about viewing a few different niches through my eyes. So I try to not just tweet headlines usually, but my, my version of the headline, I rewrite a headline pointing to news. Um, I comment on current events like the State of the Union address, something, you know, I'm, I'm doing this right now. Look at me looking at this. Um, generally, every morning I read a lot and I tweet the best of what I read. And a lot of that is sort of tech-oriented, science-oriented, current event-oriented. Um, during the day, I do stuff. I meet with now, people. Now, what is the purpose, for example, on your last example? You're, you're reading in the morning. Yeah. You're taking uh, uh, the temperature of current events or public events. Yeah. And then you're sending out a message through your own eyes. Yeah. And what is the purpose of that? And, and why would people, what do they, what do you think they hope to gain by following that? And then by, and, and do they respond? And what do they respond? So... To? You know, so how, how do people find out stuff nowadays? Most people do not get a newspaper in the morning anymore. Most people find out what's happening through their networks. And so a lot of people find out what's happening in, you know, technology, innovation, government, um, local social events from me. Because I invest more time in 
finding out a lot of the raw information um, through email, through my friends, through other sources, distilling that and filtering it through my eyes and coming up with a few really, really good things with a little bit of a personal angle on it. So a lot of people, frankly, have come to rely on me, as well as other people they follow, of course, um, for some of the best information or um, you know, somewhat biased through my eyes information in, in the fields and the communities they're interested in. Um, and I also try to make it so interesting. Would, you, would I mean, you consider yourself a gatekeeper then to some of those? Would you consider yourself an innovative leader on those? Yeah, I don't think gatekeepers. Some of the ideas, you know, I'm looking to understand this a little better. Well, I think I think you know it's about providing value, right? So the people that follow me follow me because they want to follow me, right? So I'm not I'm not you know forcing anyone to follow what I say. I just have some kind of imagined audience that is interested in technology, innovation, government, and so forth, and I try to imagine what would be valuable to them. And then I try to find that. Now, I don't consider that a job. I, I do that because I am interested in these things. And I try to find information for myself. Some of that I borrow from other people that are doing the same exact thing, right? Um, there are all kinds of good people. And so I try to provide value to the community of people that cares about the same things I do. And then to some degree, I consider it entertainment, actually. And so, you know, I think to some degree it's a little bit of a performance. And so if you can tell a little joke or be a little snarky or not be afraid to go against, you know, the, the, the public view or the widely held view, um, I think that's very valuable too. Because even if people disagree with you in that community, they consider your input valuable to whatever they're thinking about doing and so forth. Um, so, it, so half of it, I would say, is hardcore providing information to a community of people that's interested in some of the same things I'm interested in. Um, and to some degree, I consider it a performance of my personal life that lives in a digital space that is also equally interesting in a different way. And I think what you'll find out there is you have some accounts that are well-followed that are just a fire hose of information. News, 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 news. Very impersonal. You have others that are very, very amusing and interesting that are 100% personal. I'm doing this, it's crazy, I'm at a party, I'm telling jokes. I try to find something in the middle that you can justify as good for your business or good for your government or good for your community, but it's also very personable because I think it's inherently a personable medium, Twitter. I think other media are different. They're not necessarily so personal. Now, with Microsoft, what's interesting is there's going to be a lot of new things I want to read that are very Microsoft-heavy or competitor-heavy. Now, I don't want to clog up. People have come to expect certain things from Cheeky Geeky because I have this thing where I read a lot of news in the morning, I do things during the day, and I joke around a bit at night. And I don't want to break that down just because I have a new job. So what I've done is I've started a second account, um, Microsoft underscore Mark, and I've described that in the bio as a fire hose of information about Microsoft and about uh, related customer, companies and industries and innovation and technology knowledge. And so that, if you follow that, that will just be a fire hose of information, very impersonal. I'm just putting stuff out there. And I follow entirely different people and groups. Different, slightly different people are going to follow me there. 
I have like half the Microsoft Twitter accounts following me now. And so I've set that up to be a different persona of me, if you want, if you will. So very authentic, but different goal and different approach. The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. way you just answered has, has uh, it's a eureka moment for me, so I'm excited. Because one of the things that I have seen through this is you sort of are integrating your personal life and your professional life for the first time mm-hmm. on a platform. And I was trying to figure out how to do that and serve my employer and be true to myself. And what I hear you saying is you can have, it's okay to have, maybe two different Twitter accounts, and be... Yeah. Be, be, you know, be creative. Um, you know, I had to, so I was talking to those Microsoft people about this, and I was saying, you know, this is what I think. I think that we can have two authentic accounts. And I was, and someone said, you know, what are there other people doing this? So I'll give you two quick examples. There's a, a person named Guy Kawasaki. <coughs> he used to be, like, a really famous Apple evangelist. He's written some books. He's a really interesting guy. His account is turned into a complete fire hose. Where he has interns writing stuff and everything. And a, a bunch of his links, he tweets about whatever whatever's cool, whatever's interesting. But a lot of those links point back to his own business or his own blog, and then somehow he's making money out of that, right? Hey, no problem. He was um, always like that. But he's, yeah. From the beginning, he was like that. Pretty much, yeah. Well, he was tweeting before he had all time. Well, but, I, but yeah. I know him for 20 years. Yeah. So I'm telling you, he was always like that. <laughs> what do you mean, always like what? He was always promoting himself above everything else, oh, okay. what he did. Sure. Well, okay. I won't disagree with that. <laughs> but what's interesting is, you know, that's a very impersonal account. And you say, wait a second, I've seen, I've seen him get interviewed. He seems like a personal guy. Well, how does that work? So if you ever write to him and you say something that he finds interesting or reply-worthy, he has another account. It's called Guy's Replies. And so he'll reply from the other account because people have come to expect something from Guy Kawasaki's account, and that is just news, not chit-chat, right? So he uses that in a creative way, right? And they're both authentic, right? He's just sort of separating two different aspects of his personality, if you will. There's another one. Um, there's a guy, Chris Saliza. He works for The Post. And he tweets at The Fix. And I think that's the name of his blog, maybe, at, at the post. And so, you know, he tweets this and that, links to news, whatever he's up to. But what he does, I think still every day, is he live tweets press conferences. And State of the Union, he'll live tweet, like, every sentence, everything, everything, everything. Well, that would be very disruptive on his regular personable account. So he has something called the Hyperfix. And on the hyperfix, it just cranks up once a day for an hour. It's like, then give said, then give said, then give said, then tap harassed him, then give said. And then, then he doesn't touch it. So I think that, you know, there are just creative ways, and I think the sky's the limit for how you sort of divide up business and personal and figuring out what audiences want and where's there a niche I can get into, where's there a vacuum I can fill. I'm not sure if anyone else live tweets, press conferences quite like he does. I think he's filling that niche. I'm not sure that's the best thing to be doing, but he's, he's doing it, whatever. Um, you know, and I think, you know, this is very Twitter-heavy, but I think Twitter is a very, very personal medium. 
um, people want you to be personal, generally speaking, I think. But that doesn't mean that that has to be the case for anything else you're doing. You know, I think maybe a Facebook fan page, a real one, I think that should be kind of personal. I think you should interact. But a lot of them aren't. They're kind of stagnant. I think that, you know, you could have a blog that's very, very impersonal. If you're writing good thoughts and providing good information and linking and making people think, that doesn't have to be about you at all, right? So I think it really depends what exactly you're doing, what is the goal in, with each tactic. Um, and to some degree, it involves learning the culture of the medium. You know, YouTube has a totally different culture than Twitter, has a totally different culture from blogging with text. And you gotta sort of learn each one from scratch. I'm not that good with video, and I'm gonna do more video. I need to go to maybe a YouTube conference. I need to meet some of these people. I need to watch a lot of videos and find out what works. It's very different from mastering Twitter. So it's just, at the end of the day, it's a lot of hard work. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll throw one out. Yes. Okay. So, do you have any kids? No. Okay. Are you married? No. Okay. So you're, you're a handsome young guy, and you go out a lot and you party, and, uh, you know, it's part of your life. You know, the, the social networking is part of the social life, and you get value from all sides of that. Uh-huh. But um, what is the relationship between the social component and the effectiveness? Like, what if, you know, you're married and you have kids and, you know, you're, you don't really have the discretionary personal time that you had when you were a single man mm-hmm. and that type of thing. You know, what, what modification would you make? to that approach? I, you know, I just try to make whatever I'm doing interesting. So if I'm on Christmas vacation, I'm in Boston, I try to make that sound interesting. If I'm with my mom, I try to make that sound interesting, right? That, that's it. It's a performance. It's art in some way. Well, you're either, I mean, some people are more interesting than others. Some people have more interesting lives than others. Some people are in Davos right now. I'm not in Davos right now. Am I less interesting than them? Maybe. So... You know, I, I understand that. In fact, my new boss is not too much older than I am, but he's married two kids, live in the same neighborhood as him, basically. Um, we've been talking about, well, how can... He's on some of these mediums, but he is, isn't heavily involved, and he wants to be more involved. So how does he find his voice, and how do we get that out? We're talking about that. But at the end of the day, I think it's being useful and being interesting. And everyone just has to take into account whatever their life is like and whatever they do and wherever they live and do the best they can with what they have. You know, in a a crowded world, it seems that there is now a fight to differentiate oneself and to make oneself into a brand. Yes. But then what is the brand really standing for if it's only a performance? Uh, you know, we've come well, I think it has to be an, from my an authentic performance, but it's still just well, something. What is an authentic performance? That's a contradiction in terms. Uh, not really. I, I think that I think that you have to stay true to yourself and, and honestly, authentically talk about what you're doing, what you're reading, what you're thinking. But to some degree, you could have two Twitter accounts. You can just do the experiment. Well, you could have ten. Well, I'm saying you could be civil. You're going to have 16 or 32 persons. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish my sentence, and then you can chime in. Uh, you could have two Twitter accounts that you start today when you go home, and one could be the interesting one, and one could be the standard one. And you could tweet links to the same exact things 
and talking about going to the same exact places and develop these two things over time. And the interesting one is more likely to get more followers because it's interesting. So is, is that a performance or not? I don't know. I just know interesting people are more liked in society. So, you know, is it... If well, I came well, in here, what is the goal? To, to achieve... To reach the people. Mo the most number of people. I mean, no, no. You know, we used to say whoever has the most toys wins. You know, now is no. it whoever has the most followers on, on their tweeting account. I don't remember talking or one bit about getting the most numbers. Well, I'm I trying to say it so, it's, so that it's, it's about reaching as many people that care about the same thing as you do as possible. Now, not if not well, at all costs. For what end? That's to to help people to hopefully have feedback effects that help your company or whoever you work for, and to some degree make your life more full. In a generalized sense, to be helpful, going back Yes. To in a generalized sense, to be helpful to a community. In a more specific sense, to be helpful to your employer. And in a specific sense, to be helpful to yourself, to make your life richer or more fulfilling. To yeah, ultimately, it's about what I hear you saying, I haven't said it this way. If you, I haven't heard it this way. Is you have to be willing to get up on the stage. Yeah. It's a metaphor. I mean, this idea of being on a stage and performing for an audience is somewhat of a metaphor. But it is, to some degree, a performance. Well, I well, think that's what social media is all about. I mean... Social the, media is social. Exactly. On the personal side, you know... Most people want an audience, whether they want it to be larger or whether they want it to be smaller. This social media tools are giving people the ability to have an audience of people that might care about what they have to say. And that's really what it's about. I mean, then there's the professional side, which is, you know, talking about your company and your products and that sort of thing. But on the personal side, it's, you know, it's a choice. If you want to be on the stage, like you were saying, You've got your outlet right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's what it is. That's what blogging is. That's what Twitter is. I mean, on a personal level. I, I don't think too much of this is about numbers. I mean, I know very, very influential people that live in D.C., CEO of their own business. They can throw big parties, and they have to lock, like, 400 people out because there's no room, right? They have, like, 4,000 followers. It's not strictly about getting more and more numbers. It is about however big that passionate community of people is that cares about the things you're doing, try to reach those people. You know, me, I've taken an approach where I've tried to reach more people because I'm interested in four or five different niches, sort of style, fashion, pop culture, to some extent news and current events and politics, to some extent IT and Web 2.0, to some extent generally science and tech and innovation. So I have a broader scope that I cover. I can have more followers. I know people that are equally passionate, equally good at tweeting and blogging, but they have a more narrow swap. They have 4,000 followers. Who's more influential? Well, it, it depends, because if I tweet something about, you know, Perez Hilton, guess what? Like, three-quarters of my followers don't really care. They'll tolerate it as long as it's, you know, moderate. So moderation is the key to everything, as far as I'm concerned. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.